take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're reading at verse 14, but we're not going to stop there this week. So we're going to read a bit longer than that verse. Uh, If you're visiting, you don't get the joke, but we've been in the same verse for a hundred years. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. So this great exhortation, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit, who gave it as a great gift to us, would enable us to read Mark and inwardly digest all that it teaches us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at verse 14 there, you'll see that the author has been urging us to pursue, to run after peace with everyone and to pursue holiness. And the pursuing of holiness might be defined as pursuing the presence of the one who through Christ and the Spirit is already present to his people. So here we are in this room this morning. God's here, whether we like it or not, because we're gathered as His covenant people. God is present. Actually, He's present everywhere all the time, but He is promised to be present with His own people. But to pursue holiness is to pursue that presence of God in a deeper fashion as we open our lives more to Him. And that pursuit of holiness is what prepares us for our full participation in God's life, which will entail a change in us and a sight of Him. That's what he's referring to when it says that we shall see God. When at the moment of death we are enabled to see with the mind and understanding not with the body, but with the understanding. From a finite perspective, not comprehensively because even in eternity we'll not be able to comprehend God because God is so great. But nonetheless, to comprehend Him in a way proper to our finite nature. And that will be the sum of all blessedness. We talked about that as the beatific vision, the beatitude, the the blessedness of God Himself, the very joy and life and fullness that resides in God as God. We will get to participate in that and to see that when we see face to face. That's the goal. That's the destiny. Pursuing holiness is the preparation of the soul now for the sight of holiness above. 
Now, what this means practically is that it is a huge mistake for anyone to make that we can both hope to see Christ in the hereafter and at one and the same time ignore the pursuit of holiness here. That would be a vital mistake. That would be a terminal mistake for you to make. That's what this passage has been teaching. Follow holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You can't get more categorical and straightforward than that. So what are we saying about pursuing holiness? We're saying that pursuing holiness is a mark or a sign of life. Pursuing holiness is the evidence that you know God, that you have a relationship with God, we might say, from our perspective. It is an evidence that there is grace at work in you, the grace of God at work in you. And that leads us seamlessly into the words of our text for today in verse 15. See to it. Actually, the whole flow of this passage runs into it. We are to pursue peace. We are to pursue holiness, seeing to it as we go along, not forgetting to see to it or deliberately do something else at the same time. And uh, the link with what's just been said is very clear in the original. Pursue peace, pursue holiness, looking diligently, seeing to it that other things are happening. And the flaw of the, the, the passage is that we have in verse 14 our duty with respect of ourselves. And in verse 15 to the end of this section, our duty with respect of others, that is, others within the, the covenant community, within the church. And the duty that's incumbent upon all believers in this text is that we should look diligently, we should see to it, we should watch carefully. And those are all translations of one compound Greek word. And the interesting thing is that this Greek word is based on a word that you may recognize. I don't always quote the Greek here because it's obnoxious. But today it might be helpful. The word is the word episkopos. Now you will recognize that because you'll have heard of the Episcopal Church. And uh, the Episcopal Church is governed by episkopoi, that is bishops. And uh, this is the word that's used here. It's the word for oversight. What you may not know but should know, since you're in a Presbyterian church, is that Presbyterian elders uh, try, we, well, there's the Episcopal way and then there's the biblical way. We won't make any difference between the two this morning, but let me explain what I mean by that. That when you look at the New Testament use of the word episcopoi, you find it used of New Testament elders. They are presbyteroi, old men, I mean elders. They are episcopoi, that is, they have oversight. And there's another word that's used often associated with what they do. It's the word poimen, which means shepherds, pastors. 
And all those three words are all used interchangeably in texts. Uh, just off the top of my head, Acts chapter 20, where Paul is talking to the, uh, the elders there in Ephesus. He uses all of those words to describe the work of elders. And so episcopos uh, refers to the oversight that a bishop takes over a number of churches and the oversight that elders take over a church in which they are appointed. It's an official duty. But in our text today, this word episcopos is used for every believer, every believer. So there's the use of it when it's referring to the official duty of an elder, but here is the oversight of one another that is the duty of every Christian, every Christian. John Owen puts it like this, the Lord Christ has ordained that the members of the same church should mutually watch over, that is, have oversight over one another. Without this, the total care of the church of Christ will be ruined. So this is a very vital message this morning. We all, in other words, have a duty to one another within the covenant community. There are those of us who have an official duty in this respect, but all of us have a general duty in this respect to exercise oversight, take an interest in, see to it, not out of nosiness, not out of heavy-handed shepherding or intrusiveness, but rather with a view to promoting the spiritual good of others within the body of Christ. So, how does this work its way out in this passage? Well, we are to exercise oversight. Let's, let me put it like this. We are to be on the lookout for the careless. That's the first point. We're to be on the lookout for those among us who are careless. Here's how he puts it. Exercise oversight lest anyone fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, you know, or perhaps you think you know, what the grace of God means. We think of the grace of God, don't we, primarily, when we're thinking about God's own free and full favor and acceptance as it's found in the Lord Jesus. So we read uh, Romans 3, for example, that we are justified, that is, we're put right with God. We were not right with God, but we're pronounced right with God by God's grace as a gift. God's grace is a gift. We don't earn God's grace. We don't have to press buttons to get God's grace. God's grace comes to us as a gift through the redemption, that is, the work of Christ standing in our place, dying our death, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that's the basic ground floor level at which we think of the grace of God. But the grace of God also applies to other gifts and other blessings that God wants to bring into your life and mine. In Ephesians, for example, Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the immeasurable riches of His grace. By immeasurable, how much does He say there are of these riches? Well, there's no end to them. They're immeasurable. 
There is no end to the grace that is in God and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ, including the fact that by grace we've been saved. When the Apostle John is describing the fullness that there is, the plenitude of life that there is that comes towards us by virtue of our knowing God in Christ, he talks about, he uses a metaphor uh, or a way of speaking in the Greek that conveys the idea, the best, I think the, one of the best ideas is if, uh, if you're ever in London and you're in the underground and you're standing on the, on the platform and the tube, that's the train, comes in and then leaves and then another one comes in and then leaves, if you're lucky that is, and they're not in strike. And one comes in and then leaves and this, it repeats one after the other. Or you're standing by the seashore and the waves come crashing in, wave upon wave upon wave, John says, the grace of God comes to us that way. Grace upon grace upon grace, meeting our need, the plenitude of life and the vitality of life that there is in God, coming into our lives day by day, moment by moment, in all all of its fullness. Repeatedly, the grace, the riches of the grace of God. But in the covenant community, the, the writer says, That means among us in this church today, there may be those who will fail of the grace of God. They will fail, says the writer, to obtain the grace of God. Now, listen to me very carefully. He does not say that there are those sitting amongst us today who will fall from the grace of God. That is not what he's saying. If you buy grace in the hands of God, you can never fall out of his hands or be snatched out of his hands. That's a reality. He is talking here about people who fail to obtain the grace of God. They fall short of it. He talked about this earlier on in chapter 4 and verse 1, where he he speaks about some who have fallen short of obtaining the promise of entering his rest. The people he's describing there heard the good news. They were brought up hearing the good news. But the good news didn't do them any good because there was no faith. They did not embrace the good news. They didn't take it for themselves. They listened to it. But they didn't enter into it. They didn't grab it for themselves. They failed to obtain the grace of God. There are some amongst us who were baptized and became members of this church who may have professed something at some point and gained access to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but who have not savingly received and laid hold of Christ for themselves. Now, that is a very serious thing. And the Bible raises the subject with us. The Holy Spirit raises this subject with us today because he wants everybody in this room to look at their own heart and ask themselves this question. Have I for myself laid hold of Christ and received him for myself. 
or if I assumed it perhaps, just slid into it. It looks as if I'm on the way to the grace of God, but I haven't got there yet. Only God knows if that's going on in your heart. Now, why is this important? Because if the grace of God here is particularly referencing, and I think it is, the effects of the grace of God, His favor and His kindness, then I think it's specifically thinking about the last words of the previous verse, which describe the blessed hope of the believer, which is the eternal blessedness of seeing God in glory. That's why it's important that you consider this this morning. To fail of the grace of God means that when you die and your eyes are opened in the spiritual reality beyond death, you do not see God. That's why it's utterly important for you to listen to me this morning. There is a burden in this message this morning for those of you who are deceived on this vital matter. You must not dismiss this. You know, there's a thing that we say sometimes about churches. We say about churches, the first generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation goes through the processes, but has forgotten the gospel. Now, if that's true of churches, and God forbid it should happen to this church, and the only way it won't happen to this church is if we have this always before us, if our elders always have before them the business of safeguarding the gospel and don't get floppy and sentimental around the edges, but are hard-nosed when it comes to the gospel, which they are, thankfully. But if that can happen to a church, it can happen to an individual brought up in a Christian home, baptized into a Christian church, part of the, part of the background of, of uh, the church of God there at everything growing up amongst us, assuming that they're believers until some crisis in their life leaves them, as it were, questioning. Well, I want you to ask the question of yourself this morning. And if you know there's someone that you're concerned about, don't be afraid to go to them, because this passage is saying to all of us, all of us have a duty of oversight over one another within the body of Christ. We all need to be overseeing the people who are close to us that we know and asking them the question if we need to. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Back in chapter 3, the writer has warned people in the church to watch their hearts, lest there be in any of them an evil, unbelieving heart that should cause them to turn away from the living God. In chapter 4, he has called them to fear lest anyone be judged to have failed to reach God's rest. In chapter 6, he's talked about those who have a knowledge of the truth, but they haven't acted on the truth. And he said that there no longer remains for them a sacrifice for sin. You 
Let me speak to you particularly this morning. You may worship with us, labor with us, fellowship with us, and miss out from being glorified with us. Separated from all eternity. That is the issue at question this morning. If you are simply careless with regard to spiritual things. The God of grace is the God of all grace. He's the source and the fountain of all grace. He gives grace upon grace to His people. And we need to examine ourselves. Have I received that grace? Am I trusting in Christ alone for my salvation? We're to be on the lookout for the careless. Secondly, we're to be on the lookout for the contentious. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses speaks to a member of the covenant community who, uh, who was disturbing and infecting the corporate life of, of Israel. The author echoes that here. He says, Beware, lest there be among you. This is Moses, rather. Moses says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Moses is talking about the church then. We hear the writer applies it to the church now. The assembly of God's people, that is the church, is being warned about individuals, individuals who are toxic to the church's life and health. Now, how does a person get there? Well, perhaps they become disconnected from the faith. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 29, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Some of you may already be toying with this. You've been under the influence of God's church and the Word of God, and and it has shaped your ideas and your way of looking at the world, but But recently, other ideas and other ways of looking at the world have been intruding. And you've begun perhaps to be paying attention to those things. Maybe you're being influenced by those ways of looking at things, evaluating things. Maybe you were were happy with what you were being taught, but now you're not so sure. Maybe once you were happy with the doctrines of the church, but now you're, you're questioning. You're semi-detached. You're becoming increasingly disconnected. Maybe before you were happy with the morality and the, and the view of, of uh, what a man or a woman, what a human being is, and now you're, you're beginning to adopt another philosophy of, of what it means to be a human being. Perhaps you're being enticed by other ideas, concepts, philosophies, foreign concepts, foreign narratives, foreign allegiances, just like the children of Israel were. How often subtle and apparently inconsequential 
alterations or adaptations or additions to the truth can change the whole course of a life or of a church. Some have been disconnected from the faith. Others are embittered, perhaps, for some reason or another. Moses warns Israel, beware of one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It's possible to become embittered so that we stop hearing the Word of God. Oh, we hear it, but we don't hear it. When we stop appreciating the Word of God. And in this may take incremental steps. I once saw this with a friend of mine. took me a long while to see it, but he said to me on one occasion, you know, I've been doing some work on those woes that Jesus speaks against the Pharisees. And the more I read those woes, the more I think those woes apply to evangelical and Reformed people today. I asked him what he meant by that. Well, he said, they're so judgmental, moralistic, superior, believe they've got the truth, no one else has it, believe their way of looking at life and and behavior and, and morality is the right way, when things are much more plastic than they will allow. And I knew that day that he was on his way out, as it appeared to be. It wasn't doctrinal in the end. It was something else entirely. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He, his heart had found that Scripture truth had become for him inconvenient truth. Inconvenient truth. Actually, he wasn't being entirely honest with me. It wasn't the evangelicals who were his problem. He'd already shifted in his heart a million miles away. He wanted the Bible to justify his behavior, and it would not do so. He wanted his friends to justify his behavior, and it would not, they would not do so. You see, what lies in the heart, what we nurse and coddle in our minds will not stay there. It will not stay buried. Bitterness will boil over. It will spring up, says the the text. It will cause trouble. There are those whose, quote, new ideas, their, quote, enlightened behavior, socially or other ways, will have the effect of causing doubts and debates and disillusionment, among others, In some cases, it will cause deception, distraction, or diversion, leading people to disaster spiritually. One person, one person's struggles with stubbornness can have a devastating effect on the Christian community. The word that's used here, do you notice, is the word trouble. Trouble. John Owen says that word means disorder, tumult, 
and confusion. My son works in a prison. Uh, works in a prison. And uh, recently there has been tumult and disorder and confusion there because the British government bans smoking in all public places, including prisons, and provided the inmates of the prison with these e-cigarettes, which apparently you can modify for drug use, which in their creativity they've managed to do. And the place is going berserk. They're in danger. The, the officers are in danger all the time. That's the picture that's being painted here. Somebody in the fellowship is embittered. Somebody in the fellowship is disconnected from the faith. It doesn't stay in here. It will boil over somewhere. It will cause trouble. It, there will be wrangling disputes, power struggles, contentious arguments, external criticism. There will be eternal loss ultimately. And the result is that many will be defiled. Defilement is the opposite of holiness. There are sins of error and evil that threaten the safety and integrity of everyone in the church. There are beliefs and there are behaviors which, if overlooked, or if simply managed, or kept beneath the surface and not brought out into the open, critiqued, and dealt with, will in the end taint or tear apart. There's nothing that taints and tears apart like unaddressed sin. And it affects the many. That's the last word in the Greek sentence there. It affects many. Spiritual evils start small. They're often overlooked or they're rationalized away, but they are always progressive. Jesus warned us, a little yeast affects the whole loaf of bread. John Owen again. He says, church inspection, not introspection, church inspection is a blessed ordinance and duty designed by Christ himself as a means to prevent these contagious evils in churches. We need to be on the lookout for the careless and the contentious. And then thirdly, we need to be on the lookout for the contemptuous. See to it that no one is a fornicator or an unholy like Esau, it says. Now in the Bible, you'll know that, that you should know, coming to this church, I'm sure you do, that covenants, which are contracts or agreements or treaties or whatever other word we use to describe them, covenants are instruments by which God chooses to relate to his people. And in the Bible, marriage is used as an illustration of, because it's a covenantal relationship in which promises are made to one another, marriage is a great illustration of what a covenant is, because it is a covenant itself. God commits himself to be God to us, and he names us his people. So there's a covenant relationship between God and his people. 
And in the Bible, marriage and its abuses represent both covenant loyalty and covenant disloyalty. So, for example, in Isaiah 54, we have an example of God, God's own loyalty to His people. Here's what He says, "'For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He's called.'" God is saying to His people, "'I will never break covenant with you. I will never break covenant with my people. I am committed to you. I am your husband. I am your maker. I am your redeemer. I am your God, the God of the whole earth. But also, in the Old Testament, we have pictures of covenant disloyalty, covenant infidelity. When God says, for example, in Hosea 4, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Why? Because there's no faithfulness or steadfast love. Because they've forsaken the Lord. My people, instead of inquiring of me, they inquire of a bit of wood. We might say instead of the bit of wood, they're inquiring of their iPhone, or they're inquiring of their smartphone, or, or whatever it may be. But they're wanting their answers somewhere other than the Lord. They're inquiring of something else rather than the Lord. In their case, it would have been an idol or a, an evil spirit. God goes on to say this, they have left their God to play the whore, gone after other gods. They listen to them. They abandon the only God there really is. So because marriage symbolized covenant relationships with God, fornication symbolized apostasy through the practice of idolatry. And that is the connection really here in this text. The word unholy, the second word that's used there, or profane, means precisely to be unconcerned with the demands of God's holiness. Those are the words of Luke Johnson. So the Holy Spirit holds up the illustration of Esau and says Esau is an example of covenant infidelity. Esau was born into a covenant family. His grandfather was Abraham. His father was Isaac. Isaac is the one you know about Isaac. He's the one who was taken, bound up, going to be killed, and God sent the lamb, the, the lamb, and the lamb died in Isaac's place. Isaac has stories to tell. Jacob and Esau. His brother was a believer. His mother was a believer. Esau was not a believer. And we're told about Esau's heart. He sold his birthright for a single meal. You know the story. He came home hungry one day. He'd been out hunting. Came home hungry. And he asked his brother Jacob to, give, to make him some food. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He bartered it away lightly. He was contemptuous of the inheritance that was honored and taught and communicated within the covenant family that he grew up in. He saw no benefit to it. 
Just think for a moment about that inheritance. There were what we might say temporal or earthly privileges attached, particularly that the one who got the birthright got to be the head of the clan, the king of the hill, and he got to have a double portion of the promised land once you got there. But in particular, there were spiritual blessings in that, covenant, in that, uh, in that inheritance. In particular, it promised two things. There was the promised seed. That is, whoever was the head of the clan became really in the place of the firstborn, and, and that was the line through whom God was going to work that ultimately would bring into the world the one who had been promised to Abraham who would bring a blessing to the whole world, the Lord Christ Himself. The one who was the firstborn of the Father eternally without beginning. The one who would be the firstborn of His mother without a father, the Blessed Virgin. So there was the promised seed, and there was the promised land. That it wasn't the real estate we call Israel in, in the Middle East. That bit of real estate was only ever a sign pointing to a greater promise. The promised land. We've already had this in chapter 11 when we, talk, we, we read about Abraham who never settled down in, in Israel. He never settled there. He kept on as a pilgrim because he was looking for the real promised land. The city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for that. For heaven. For heaven. And Esau. Esau did not prize heaven. He was contemptuous of heaven. He married two Hittite women who brought their idols into the home. Foreign gods. Two women who provoked the family. Two women who were not believers. And he became obsessively, destructively, violently hostile to Jacob. And his successors were abiding enemies of the people of God. His successors were Edom. And the Edomites were abiding enemies. In fact, Edom becomes a code word in the Old Testament for that which is opposed to God. And in the later period, it becomes a code word for the Roman Empire, which was the chief example at that time of an idolatrous, promiscuous people. Esau was contemptuous of the covenant blessings into which he was born. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've been presented with opportunities and possibilities that make you look at your parents' and your friends' faith and find it pedestrian, boring, 
unscientific, unnecessary, and embarrassment. Is that where you are today? You haven't told them yet, but in your head, that's where you are already. In your head, you are contemptuous of the faith of your family, perhaps, or of this church that you've grown up in. This man, Esau, later in his life, wanted the birthright back. He wanted to be the head of the clan. He dismissed the spiritual side, but he wanted the temporal side. And he wanted that back. He tried very hard to get it back, but God did not repent. God did not change his mind. This is not a good translation of this text, by the way. God is the one who does not repent. God is the one who does not change his mind. There was no way back. You wanted the temporal blessing. You need to want the spiritual blessing. He did not want the spiritual blessing. Because he did not love the God of his parents. He did not love the God of the covenant community. He turned his back on that. And let me tell you what he did. He turned his back on that, and he woke up in hell when he died. That's what's at stake here. That's why we have to have oversight over one another. We can't say someone else should look after them. We should look after them. We can't say someone else should talk to them. We need to talk to them. We can't dismiss the responsibility to one another within the fellowship of this church because of the dangers that there are. I mean, Esau, we read about the end of the story here, about his tears. Here was a man who, who wept tears, who grieved over the consequences of his sin, but not over his sin. Here was a man who wept tears because he couldn't get his position back or his place back. But he didn't weep tears in pleading for God's mercy. If you're hearing this today, in this room or wherever you're watching, Is it the end for you? Maybe it will be. Maybe this is the last time. Words will register. Maybe this is the last time. Please, please will be heard. So let me put it to you right now. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of opportunity. God has brought you here today that you would hear this for yourself. Are you careless? Are you contemptuous? Are you contentious? Are you this far away from deserting the covenant community of God's people? This is your chance. God in His mercy has given you this moment, this day, this place, to hear this warning. If I could come down, if I knew who you were, 
I would come to you and put my arms around you and hug you and say, come to Christ. Come to him for yourself. Take him for yourself. Receive him for yourself. Make sure you do that. Make sure that you don't listen to the other voices, that you listen to the one voice that will last for eternity, the voice of God. Make sure that when we open our eyes in glory and we see God, we'll see you there too. Will you do that? And for the rest of us, if we know someone who needs us, to get alongside them, to encourage them, Let's do what we can, shall we? Let's do what we can. God help us. Lord, we know that eternal life is the gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whether we know or don't know you this morning, even those of us who've known you for years and years and years, we come again to you and we say, thank you, Lord. You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go but to you. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.